Welcome to the MBUK podcast. In this series, we'll be looking back through some of the moments that helped shape the sport of mountain biking. From the pioneers that paved the way, bikes that broke the tech boundaries, and the events that pushed the very limits of the sport, to the racers who will be forever cemented in our memories for their antics on and off the track. We'll even do our best to predict how things will look in the future. If you enjoy what we're doing, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast and share it with your mates. And if you have time, please give us a review. Hi everyone, it's the MBUK podcast. I'm your host, Tom Marvin. And with me is my regular co-host, the man who knows everything about mountain biking. Oh. It's Rob Weaver. Pressure's on. Pressure's on. Uh, <laughs> and joining us in this episode of the podcast is our guest, JCW, James Costley White Cost. He is the head honcho of MBUK. How's it going, guys? Are we all, all right? Yeah, good. Yep. Good. Thanks, Tom. Excellent stuff. In this episode of the podcast, we are talking about the people who shaped the sport, the people who started mountain biking, the people who developed it, and the people who have grown it into the sport we love i think that's about right isn't that guys yeah yeah i mean the people that have been arguably the most influential not everyone who currently rides might have heard of all of these people we're going to talk about but they have played a critical role throughout the years yeah i mean mountain bike has been going on since what like the early 80s ish so we're going to start with a bit of the history of the, of the sport where it all came from we're going to talk about some of the races some of the brands some of the people behind those companies and some of the people who sort of Bought mountain biking into the mainstream. That's right. Yeah. All right. Well, shall we start off right at the start? Cost, you're a man who knows quite a lot about how mountain biking began. Some of the names, some of the people, some of the brands. And that's not because you're old. But you've got you've got a bit of knowledge about this sort of stuff. So we're starting off with the clunkers. Yeah. I mean, people have ridden bikes off road forever, really. Mm. Rough but, stuff fellowship. Yeah, rough stuff fellowship here in the UK. I remember seeing photos of people like using bomb craters as uh, bomb holes in France after right. the Second World War. But in terms of mountain biking as the sport we know it today, you can sort of trace its roots really to California in the mid 70s. Mm -hmm. And to two people, Charlie Kelly and Gary Fisher, who were both sort of road, well, Gary certainly was a road racer. Charlie, I think, wasn't quite so serious, but was into bikes a lot. And they were roommates for a while. And they got into this kind of hobby of making what they called clunkers, which were kind of modified cruisers, beach cruisers that mm -hmm. they used to ride off-road. They call them ballooners or something like that. Yeah, ballooners like is balloon another tires. word. They had balloon tires, sort of steel frames, fairly relaxed geometry. And they started bombing down the fire roads of Marin County on these things. Mm -hmm. And then those two started a race called the Repack, which was called such because you had to repack your coaster brakes with fresh grease after every run because they got so hot screaming down these hills. So <laughs> grease in brakes, that's something that we all do these days, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not, yeah don't, don't take the wrong uh, takeaway from this and start putting grease in your brakes. It's not a good idea. But in the old coaster drum brakes, you had to, to repack them with grease. And then that gradually kind of transitioned to people actually starting to build custom mountain bike frames mm -hmm. rather than just rebuilding old beach cruisers. Joe Breeze was the first one to actually build what, what can really be described as a modern mountain bike, the Breezer number one. And very soon afterwards, uh, Gary Fisher and Charlie Kelly went into business with Tom Ritchie, another frame builder, and started the, the Mountain Bikes brand. Okay. One thing I saw when I was reading about this, 
it kind of everything came a little bit full circle because the first like ballooners they're riding on like 650b wheels i think weren't they it wasn't 26 inch from the start it was 650b which has yeah. obviously come back again what 10 years ago well and funnily enough in the uk at the same time a guy called jeff apps was experimenting with off-road bikes and he used both 650b wheels and 29 inch wheels right and 24 inch wheels um but in the end everyone seemed to settle on 26 inch just because they were readily available. Mm-hmm. They were quite strong. Yeah. So you had the, uh, the breeze number one in the States, you had the Jeff apps Ridge rider in the UK, but then obviously these were bikes made in small quantities by kind of artisan frame builders and then mountain bikes was bigger, but still not mass market. Mm-hmm. And it was when specialized joined the game that things really took off. There's a bit of debate as to whether specialized or Univega deserved the title of first mass production mountain bike but i guess the one we all know is when the stump jumper was launched in 81 uh oh 81 or 82 i can't remember um okay. but yeah they i mean obviously that's the one that's stuck in everyone's mind because specialized marketing to some <laughs> extent is is very good and a bike that's still around now and yeah. it's you know it's I like mean, it's changed a bit it, right but, yeah and it's an iconic name it's still around now everybody's heard of the stump jumper and that came courtesy of mike Sinyard. yeah yeah i think when we're looking at sort of the names who are involved from the start like there's names and areas that sort of pop up in throughout the history of mountain biking. You know, you're talking Tom Ritchie, kind of in what the late 80s, you know, Ritchie was the second biggest component manufacturer in mountain biking after Shimano, I think I read somewhere. And, you know, still Ritchie is still around, you know, the P29 with various bikes. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. You know, you've got Marin County, or Marin Bikes, you know, Mike Sinyard specialised. These are all such brands that are connected with the history of the sport and is still totally relevant today. Yeah, and these were largely guys who raced and also, you know, pioneered the tech side of the sport mm-hmm. and also were big personalities. Well, not all of them, but obviously people like Gary Fisher yeah. are known as much for their, their fashion sense and yeah. their, their stages and their moustaches yeah. and their kind of outspoken ideas as they are for the bikes. Keith Bontrager around from the start. Now yeah. you can't ride a Trek without one of, you know, a, t- a tire with his name all over it, a handlebar with his names on it. Yeah. So I guess we kind of almost fast forward then to the end of the 80s when mountain bikes have got traction in the States and they start to sort of filter over to the UK. Nice, nice pun there, traction. Good job. Okay. Oh, yeah. That's what I'm employed for, yeah. Um, <laughs> Puns. Who writes the cover line? <laughs> <laughs> and by this point, you've got you know many more brands involved. You've got you know, Yeti, you've got Marin, uh, you've got Kona. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah, and 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 with that, actual paid professional riders in yeah. order to market those bikes, right? Yeah. So maybe we should start talking about a few of the the big names from around the early nineties. One that always stands out to me is Hans Ray. So you know, Hans was a trials rider. He started out in you know genuine sort of trials competitions, and from what I've heard, he was very very good at it. But I guess he was a smart dude and realized he could take mountain biking to a bigger stage? Yeah, I think at, at that point, so obviously mountain biking kind of started as a downhill sport. Then when Shimano and others started developing gears for off-road use, it turned into more of a cross-country focused thing, hmm. which you know people within the scene enjoyed but didn't have as much appeal for people outside the scene. So when Hans came along, along and he was doing crazy stuff like videos with chimpanzees and he was on this American TV show called Pacific Blue where he was basically a bike cop Who'd, who'd do wheelies to hit baseball bats out of people's hands like and crazy Miami stuff like this. on bikes. Uh-huh. Yeah, and even worse than that sounds. Definitely pre-my time. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine Greg Minard doing that now. <laughs> <laughs> but, 
but it you know that changed the the public perception of the sport i guess it helped to make it a bit cooler and not just about riding around the field in lycra so i think you've got a lot to thank him for from that point of view and also obviously the people he yeah. went on to influence um so in the uk people like martin ashton and uh and martin horse, martin horse. yeah and then ultimately straight on to people like Danny McCaskill, who's obviously probably the most famous mountain biker in the world right now. I was watching a, one of Danny Mac's films last night at a, a film festival and, and Hans Ray is still in, you know, he's still featuring in Danny Mac's little films, you know. It's kind of cool. Yeah, I mean, he's still coming to the classic. He's still riding, yeah. Still putting out videos and travelogues and things. Mm-hmm. Hell of a guy. Hell of a guy, no Hell way. Hell of a guy. <laughs> yeah, if I can just rewind a fair bit. Ooh. Obviously, we can't. Talk about the 80s without mentioning MBK starting in 1988. Well, yeah. Well, yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> but it also was around that time that the UK started to have its own proper scene and proper bike brands. So you had the likes of Muddy Fox coming out then. And some other ones. And some other ones. <laughs> <laughs> I just well, Rally was big then, right? Yeah, Rally. I mean, the Rally Mustang was everywhere, wasn't it? The Muddy Fox Courier was more of an urban bike, but it still was a mountain bike. Well, and then Rally, Not, the, the US... Yeah. Oh, rally sponsored the likes of John Tomac, which was massive. Yeah, well, and you had the big UK cross country guys like uh, David Baker, Gary Ford, yeah, um, uh, Tim Gould. You know, the the UK Caroline rally team Alexander. was massive. Yeah, that's what we were struggling to remember. She won everything. Yeah, yeah, loads of good ones. And then in the mid nineties, you had this new wave of British talent who weren't cross country, right? Or they might have started off doing cross country, but they, but downhill was getting bigger. So you had the likes of Jason McRoy, RIP, and Rob Warner and Steve Pete, who kind of brought a, a more, well, I think British mountain was always fun, but they brought a more kind of aggressive, gravity-focused side to the sport. Well, I guess Jason McCroy, you know, um, he was really well known for the fact that he went over to the US, had a breakout ride over there racing the kamikaze. So the, I don't know if you've ever seen it, Tom, the head-to-head the you re-bot. go as fast down a mammoth mountain as you can, racing with another rider. Is it basically four cross, but over a whole mountain? Well, I dual, guess it would dual, dual slalom over a whole mountain. Yeah, yeah. like 60, 70 miles an hour right. on bikes that... With cantilever brakes and crap tyres. You'd and, regret riding yeah. on the road now, <laughs> let alone riding down a mountain. <laughs> and they still insisted on putting their saddles up. Yeah. Insanity. But still, he, he kind of, off the back of that, started to get some proper sponsorship deals and he ended up riding before he died he was he'd signed a massive deal with specialized hadn't he yeah so he's riding for the specialized factory team yep. by the end i mean he'd ridden for mbk a f- couple of years before of course yeah um, as had warner and and steve yeah and his success obviously showed other british downhillers that they could make it you know we might not have any proper mountains especially in england but well What's south of the lake district but you, <laughs> you can you can still be a top downhiller and mm-hmm. thanks to him you know rob warner went on to win the first world cup for a british rider downhill rider and then cp obviously went on to massive success and i think we're not going to dwell too much on racing in this episode because we've got a separate episode on racing but i think you can see once steve and rob became successful the way people were riding in the uk changed i think yeah. a lot more people were more focused on downhill less on cross country mm-hmm should we look back then and talk about some of the people maybe have influenced tech uh, and the bikes that we're riding these days? So we've, we've gone down the racing front, as I said, but we're going to talk about those specifically in another episode. But one of the names that sort of popped out to me was Paul Turner, and he introduced the RS1 uh, in 1989. So the RS1 
Rock Shocks One. Is that a fair sort of you know thing to sort of assume what the name means? Um, the RS One was a really influential, important product in in the history of mountain biking because it kind of brought suspension to the masses. I tell you what, I, I remember when the suspension fork as a whole, you know, like the the RS One was notably the most effective mm -hmm. but there were others out there and i just remember listening to cross-country racers debating whether yeah like a lot of the roadies do whether it's worth adding the weight mm -hmm. for what you get back in return yeah because the the performance compared to nowadays was pretty, pretty rudimentary bogging, right? <laughs> yeah, it wasn't great but but then you got some guys going well you know what if i can stick it on and ride mm -hmm. you know a bit faster yeah I'll, I'll suck it up i'll take the weight whereas others were like no it's all about saving grams i'll stay on a rigid bike and mm -hmm. you know soon enough those guys were switching over anyway the thing that surprised me when i was looking into the rs1 was that it was an air sprung fork with some sort of like platform lockout hydraulic thing automatically built in according to the adverts that you know you can find jpegs off on the on the internet <laughs> You know, I, I, I wasn't around. Sorry, research, yeah. I, mean, I was actually around. But I was only two, <laughs> so I really not what's going on at that point. But it seemed like I, I, I just sort of assumed that you know suspension fork from the eighties was elastomers. And again, you know, we're going to talk about the tech that changed mountain biking. But you know, Paul Turner really developed this and and yeah. was behind this mass adoption of suspension. Well, that's why it was out of reach for so many people because it's expensive. It was three hundred and fifty-ish dollars, I think. And it, which ended up being in today's money about eight hundred and fifty dollars or something. So certainly not cheap, but on a par with what we're spending yeah, yeah. now. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, I think back then, because there were cheaper options available, yeah, yeah. which would use elastomers, for uh -huh. example, sponges. Which, yeah, you're basically shoving like almost as crude as like pencil erasers into your fork, mm -hmm. slathering them with grease and hoping that they kind of do something. Yeah. Depending on the weather, they might, they might not. Mm -hmm. Um. So yeah, there was there were options out there, but yeah, Paul Turner made a massive impact mm -hmm. on how we you know how we ride now, yeah, and what we do with our bikes, you know, out on the trails. And I think another person on similar lines then is Gary Fisher. His name popped up earlier on. He was a guy who you know he had his own brand of bikes, Gary Fisher. He then ended up that brand, I believe, got bought out by Trek. He introduced the Twenty Nine er, which you know has revolutionized in many respects mountain mountain bikes these days yeah his g2 geometry which was you know maybe almost a precursor to the long low and slack things we see now with like real thinking about fork trail and rake and and top tube lengths and and head angles and all that sort of thing you know he really was you know really influential for mountain biking yeah i mean he wasn't the only person playing with different wheel sizes but he was definitely the one who popularized it you know by through the cloud of track and as you say the geometry side of things you know I think I said earlier the the early clunkers were quite relaxed and kind of stable and slack head angles, and then in the eighties it moved to more of kind of road bike style geometry as people mm. focus on cross country speed. And I think Fisher started taking it back towards well, well, hang there, what can we do to add a bit more stability, a bit more control? So he had a big impact from that mm -hmm. point of view. Yeah, massive. And then and then you got the likes of Juliana Furtado, who was you know multiple world champion cross country, multiple US champ. Um, competed at the Olympics when it became an Olympic sport in 96, started yeah. out in Atlanta. Um, and if people recognize the name Juliana, it's because, you know, it's uh, now part of the Santa Cruz group. She was uh, a massive proponent of 
women-specific um, components. And yet Santa Cruz took hold of that and ran with it and, and produced, you know, the entire line of Juliana bikes, which are designed for female riders, which is, which is incredible. And she, you know, she kind of more or less spearheaded that. Yeah. And I think on that note, it's important to remember the, the history of mountain biking has been written by men because it was such a male dominated sport for a long time. Mm-hmm. But there were women there from the very start, you know, people like Wendy Cragg, who was kind of documenting the clunker scene. And then Jackie Phelan, who set up uh, Wombats, which I'm now going to struggle to remember what it stood for. Women on... Women's Mountain Bike and Tea Society. Ah, oh, that's it. The Tea Society. So, <laughs> right. And she was very influential in, in getting more women on bikes, but also in saying it's not just about racing. It is about the lifestyle, you know, mm-hmm. which is something we've always celebrated in the mag. You know, it's... And the tea thing, you, you can... The tea thing, I can definitely... Yeah. Four cups this morning already. It's, <laughs> it's only yeah. What about... Um, We've kind of cut, touched on a bit of the tech side of it. We've also spoken about a few of the races, but what about where the sports may be diversified? So obviously there was the more traditional routes, downhill, cross-country trials, stuff like that. But was it sort of mid to late 90s? We started to see people kind of doing their own thing maybe a bit more? Yeah, I think if you look at the, you know, you look at the kind of videos in the late 90s, the, the dirts and the, chain spottings and what have you, you can see that trials is already starting to capture the public imagination thanks to Hans Ray and the Ashtons. And I think it's around that sort of time that dirt jumping starts to pick up a bit. I mean, I think prior to that, the bikes weren't necessarily up to it. You know, you see the old videos of, um, was it Jez Avery? Yeah. Doing some pretty small jumps in full body armour <laughs> by today's standards. I mean, at the time, they were probably seen as huge. It, they were really, I mean, they yeah. were like pretty dinky on a BMX track, if I remember rightly, yeah. And that, I think in the early 2000s with foot and mouth and all that kind of stuff, that proved a really good alternative to trail riding for the for the industry to push, but also for people who didn't have amazing trails on their doorstep. Because in those days, there weren't trail centers. Mm. You know, you rode your local woods, and if you didn't have any local woods, you had to ride the streets. So the arrival of specific trials bikes and specific dirt jump bikes was a big thing in the 2000s. I imagine it's also quite a good way to, again, capture that public imagination. You know, you, big thing for, you know, the Ashtons in particular seem to be those traveling road shows that are still going on now, like the rock and roll tours, you know, where members of the public who maybe don't drop, ride much. Drop and roll. Drop and roll. Rock and roll. Rock and roll. They still go on drop and roll, you know what I mean? <laughs> but they, you know, they're, they're a great way for the sort of the public who maybe aren't, into the mountain bike scene to get sort of some exposure to the mountain bike scene. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, like you said, Sam Pilgrim was a big part of those tours, as were people like... Sam Reynolds. Sam Reynolds, Blake Sampson. Yeah. And I think you can trace it even further back than that to people like Steve Gill, who really kicked off the UK mountain bike dirt jumping scene. Um, And obviously a lot of those guys have gone on to bigger things. And, you know, would we have the likes of Tom Eistead today, you know, if, if Sam Pilgrim hadn't helped pay the way on the world stage, you know? I think you watch his, his YouTube videos today and it's easy to forget that Sam was actually the FMB World Tour yeah. champion. Mm. You know, it's pretty amazing for a, a dirt jump kid And then over the UK. In, I was going to say then, uh, over in Canada, the free ride movement, right? I mean, that was massive. I mean, well, it maybe wasn't so big over here until we started to see some of the videos coming out, like New World Disorder and, and stuff like that, where you see just how insane those guys were. You know, Brett Tippy springs to mind first and foremost. I mean, what a character. Yeah, so the Rocky Mountain Throwriders, as they became known. So Tippy, uh, Richie Schley, and Wade Simmons 
really put free ride on the map. You know, they've been messing around on on scree slopes in Kamloops and Canada for ages, but it wasn't until they started appearing in videos that they reached this side of the pond and really started to take off. And then wasn't there MTV drop-in TV as well? Yeah, right. there was drop-in TV. Um, what was that on the Extreme Sports Channel or something over here? Yeah, something like that. And I mean, yeah. it was kind of, again, it was that sort of mainstream acceptance of this quirky little sport that we've been doing for years. Yeah. And it was, I mean, they made it look as extreme as it possibly could be. It, there was definitely yeah. sort of like BMX and skateboard influences in there. And we tried to sort of mimic it on this side of the pond. You know, a lot of North Shore woodwork sprang up mm. and oh, was God. hastily torn down by the forestry. <laughs> Dear God. Um, it, I think it was, it's obviously a different situation here. We haven't got all the ski resorts with the uplift and all the rest of it. So I think maybe that's why dirt jumping and trials maybe were slightly bigger over here. And also we had a thriving downhill scene. So whereas the Canadian riders would go out and hike off stuff, a lot of the guys of a similar mindset in the UK would be racing instead. It was quite a different sort of, it was a different mindset as well, wasn't it? it there was this sort of highly skilled, trained racer attitude, or there was, it felt like, I'm not saying this is necessarily correct, but it felt like then, then there was the free ride, which was like, party even harder than the downhillers yeah. just throw yourself off a cliff it didn't really matter with how much finesse yeah it was kind of as long as you could pretty much ride it out or survive the landing well this is a winner this is the thing in the early days it was about you know riding free in the back country then it's kind of changed thanks to people like josh bender to hucking your meat off cliffs and i mean he really did huck off <laughs> he did like, huck Oh my god, the videos of that back then. Did you you must have seen I've seen I've seen Josh Bender, yeah. But then oh it's not, it's not much to see. But then that led to a bit of a backlash where people were saying, you know, hang on a minute, this isn't the way the sport should be going. Mm. And then you had people like Darren Barrickloff coming along, Bearclaw, you know, doing three sixties off the road gap at Crankworks. So all of a sudden there was more BMX influence. So all of a sudden there's more BMX mm. influence and the sport I mean obviously it retains a, a crazy edge of events like Red Bull Rampage. But the, on the other, the flip side of that, you have got the kind of slope style scene, which is more trick focused. Mm. Can I say one thing that I'm quite glad that never really took off in the UK? We briefly mentioned it was like the North Shore stuff. I watched a bit of it yesterday. Oh. Was the Yeti Betty film. I don't know if you guys have seen mm -hmm. that. It's about this um, woman called Betty. In and you know, she's in <laughs> she lives in the oh, yeah. in the North Shore. She's 75 and she's still riding. And it's sort of this little. It's a beautiful little film, and it kind of follows her talking to her about her sort of career in but first in windsurfing and then in mountain biking. And now she's been doing all this stuff for years. And it talked to some, like the original builder of like the North Shore. Um, but it's obviously got clips from like the early days of people like just riding along a plank 12 foot in the air. And I'm, like, I'm so glad I've never had like the pressure to get involved Dude, in that. We used to shoot bike tests on that stuff. <laughs> there was a place just outside Cheddar, right? Where you, all of a sudden you'd find yourself up on this slippery wooden <laughs> platform balancing along while Steve Bear's sort of down below trying to take a shot. And I'm like, I'm going so slow, but if I fall off, I'm going to snap both my legs. This is, yeah. this just sucks. Well, you had people like Cliff Barberi, didn't you? Was he the guy behind that? Yeah. Pushing free ride in the fan. UK. And then obviously mm. Chris Smith on the riding front and Jim Davidge. But it, it never felt like it really took off. I, th I think downhill always remained more of a core British mm. Downhill in the dirt thing. jump, maybe. Yeah. The dirt jump scene was really big. Yeah. I think it's, should we move on to latterly, maybe the 2010s and onwards? And in terms of sort of really shaping 
the modern day sport of mountain biking. I, th- I, th- I think it's difficult to look past the likes of, and he's not the only one, but Chris Ball, you know, who really developed enduro and, and enduro in terms of tech massively pushed the sport in terms of the technology and the riding we're all doing, but it's people behind the sport of enduro, the racing of enduro. You know, there's, there's guys in Italy, there's guys in France and in the UK and, you know, sort of from an anglophone point of view, Chris Ball is hugely influential in all of that. We kind of had the bikes to a degree. We had trail bikes. They mm-hmm. they sort of developed enough that they were capable, and you could take them out and ride them down a mountain. Which, you know, there was a handful of them maybe early two thousands, mm-hmm. but not loads. Generally, if you went to the mountains, you rode a downhill bike, yeah, or you did you know cross country on tamer trails. But as that sort of developed, then you had the likes of Enrico Guala, I think, yeah. out in Italy, and Fred Glow in France who saw the potential, put on these Endura races, which kind of mimicked what the rally drivers were doing, mm. you know, rally stage races. Um, that then became, you know, blind racing or, you know, you do one pass, see the track. So it's quite different to downhill, big day out. And then, like you said, Chris saw the potential of that and ran with it and created what was then the Enduro World Series, which became huge. Mm. It, you know, it gave birth to a different type of racing, a different type of professional rider. Yeah. So, you know, initially we had people coming across from cross country or from downhill and some from neither and were able to mix it up and mm. fight at the top for those top spots. And and it was a, to a degree, it was, you know, it's a breath of fresh air. It was maximum time on the bike without necessarily, you know, being slogging your guts out in mm. a, xc race but it was still a hard day out and you didn't have the limited bike time that you would have if you rode a downhill bike i guess from a racing point of view you know when you've got those two extremes of xc and downhill from like a regular punter point of view who you know maybe is a trail rider or someone who just goes mountain biking you know they maybe aren't going to be so turned on by the thought of slogging around a field as fast as they can in in the midlands or throwing themselves down some horrible rocky shoot you know where you have to get a lift to the top you know Enduro sort of became the mountain bike racing for the kind of the actual mountain bikers. Yeah, like the everyday. The everyday person's race series. Yeah. And that was always the thing with EWS was that it's kind of changed now with EDR and and, and latterly the, you know, EDS before it turned into EDR. But it was the race series where you as an absolute punter could go and race against Tracy Mosley or Richie Rude or, you know, like the absolute pros. You could rock up on the same start line as these guys without any real pre-qualification to do so. Made it super accessible. Yeah, absolutely. And again, it was one of those things where I think from a media standpoint, harder to cover Yeah, because of the distance. So maybe not the best for spectators or, um, you know, to to try and cover from our point of view. Mm. But yeah, you're totally right. On the other hand, it's stuff that we could go and ride. Mm-hmm. You can go and ride the same tracks. It's not like you can just rock up to a downhill World Cup or a cross-country World Cup and pot around behind them yeah you know this was an opportunity to go and experience the same as you know what they were experiencing but you know probably a bit slower Mm. you talked about there how it's maybe enduro hasn't been the easiest way to show mountain biking so maybe we should very quickly before we wrap up talk about some of the people who have sort of shown the world mountain biking through whether it's photography through videography through print publishing through internet you know and one of those guys who you know, certainly in, the, in Britain made a massive impact on how we consume 
sort of rad mountain biking. Alex Rankin, who's the guy behind Sprung, the Sprung series, like a magazine show almost, and then developed into Earth and uh, was it Foundations he made as well? You know, a really influential filmmaker. Can I just say that was a beautiful segue? Thanks. Yeah, it was really good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Rankin, yeah. Um, it was sort of the original Sprung stuff, the way he filmed it, the way he put the soundtrack over it, mm. it just, it worked on so many levels. It encapsulated the British scene amazingly. It also, you know, included the video diary stuff of Warner of PT yeah. out at the World Cup. So you got to see some of that international stuff. For me, it was that that was it was that window into that scene that just made me think, oh my God, this yeah. is exactly what I want to do. Well, I couldn't get enough of it. I think it made mountain biking cool, didn't it? Or it, it showed us what that was cool to, yeah, yeah. to why the world that it was cool. It was proper gonzo film. I watched yeah. Sprung One yesterday, a couple of days ago and like, you know, you've got a bit of racing in there. You've got like the student champs from whatever year well, it Because he was out. down at Plymouth yeah. Uni, yeah. right? So he was down with like joe finney and, and those yeah, guys yeah. in the original film and they're just crashing their brains out yeah messing around you know they're all sort of pissed up you know the, the sort of the filming you know you know when you've got like like a fisheye you know it's the pictures you know like yeah yeah, yeah. just really encapsulated like the scene of like this is a group of people having a load of fun yeah. taking the piss a little bit and riding their bikes and not taking it super seriously and the thing is as it progressed so almost like as alex is skills and everything progressed so did the scene mm. Mm. so it all became more professional so what you were seeing as you went from sprung through to the earth series was more racing high caliber riding mm -hmm. you know crazy um bespoke stuff shot just for alex which was incredible um but he never lost that original sort of essence of what it was always about it was always the riders. It was always the riding. Mm. The soundtracks were always incredible mm -hmm. and, and massively inspiring to a generation, an entire generation. And, you know, I think Clay Porter's spoken about it before, just saying no one could do what he did. You know, no one could emulate it. He did it so well. Yeah. No one could go out and and, and mimic it and, and do anywhere near as good a job. Mm -hmm. It was, for me, you know, I used to, I must have worn those videos out. I've yeah. watched oh, them yeah. so many times. I mean, I was obsessed with racing and the way he captured it, the, it made it look so fun. And it was the racing and the after parties, which was <laughs> the massive appeal to me. Yeah. The super cool ride in the wild antics on and off the bike. Yeah. I, I couldn't get enough of it. Yeah. I mean, I think while we're talking about wild antics and the kind of image of the sport, we need to give Sean Palmer a nod. Yeah. You know, we'll talk about him probably more in the racing episode, but, you know, at a time when everyone was still wearing Lycra, this crazy like snowball pro suddenly appears in the scene wearing you know full-on fox motocross kit mm -hmm. and you know wearing a gold suit and a crown on the podium and all this kind of stuff and you know this was the heyday of extreme sports i guess in the late 90s well yeah he burst down in 96 in yeah. hands in his full head-to-toe red white and blue fox kit race you know he got second to nico by zero point one five seconds yeah and was really pissed off i mean he <laughs> like, was like, seriously yeah yeah to, wouldn't you right yeah but i mean he he'd been riding for like two years or something right yeah and just was like yeah it's easy i can do this yeah and then he pretty much disappeared again but in those two years he kind of changed the way that mountain bikers 
dressed and mm-hmm. and even saw themselves I to mean, an extent. He, he did win in Big Bear in '99. Oh, in he a did skin suit. Yeah, yeah, he did. <laughs> it, it can be overstated, but I think you he, know, he he upped the level of professionalism in terms of salary. Yeah. He, he was not afraid to ask for money, from what I've heard. And he showed you could have that rock and roll spirit that someone like Missy Jove, Jove has had, but he took it to another level. And again, that was stuff that Alex documented. The yeah. parties at his house yeah. were insane. The, the pit bike track around his house, his neighbours must have hated it. <laughs> but it was, it was that, you know, those insights into the professional life and how wild it could be. It was just so cool. Mm. I think when we're looking at the UK, and we'll, we'll wrap this up in a minute, but the scene is obviously defined not only by the likes of the races and the people who are making, you know, really cool videos, but also the media that surrounds it. You know, MBK, we've been around since 89, whatever it is. 88. 88. <laughs> I know my history. <laughs> uh, I was a year old, not two years old. But also, you know, the likes of Dirt Magazine, hugely influential, yeah. you know, through the likes of Jonesy, Mike Rose, that sort of people. And they obviously worked a lot with Alex Rankin. And Mark Noble. And sure. Mark Noble. Yeah. But you can't have magazines without photographers. And I think it's just worth spending just two minutes to chat very quickly about the legend that is Steve Bear, someone who's worked on MBUK since the start and is still, you know, I shot with him a couple of weeks ago. You know, this guy has been around the block, he's done everything, he knows everyone, and he's a yeah. true legend. Right? I wouldn't be working here if it wasn't for Steve. Yeah. Without a doubt. I was riding for Saracen. We had to shoot, as part of the sponsorship thing, we had to shoot the uh, catalogue. Uh-huh. Steve was there shooting the catalogue. I think we pretty much shot the whole thing at the edge of a car park. Yeah. Um, and then he was like, oh, you know, if you want to help with other shoots, here's my number. Yeah. And then I was like, okay, this sounds good. Uh-huh. I can make some money just riding a bike. Great. Yeah. I'm in. And and yeah, didn't look back. He helped me from day one. Yeah. And he's still an integral part. Him and obviously Tim Manley, Steve Warland. I think every scene has had someone like Steve. I mean, Steve's amazing, but obviously mm. you can't, overlook you know people like sterling lawrence yeah. in north america and people like sven martin on the world mm. cup scene you know these, these guys have done so much to, again to shape the image of the sport Mark and fear on before him. And get it out there yeah and yeah so many people so i've been doing this what 10 years and i think you know i read mbk since i was 12 and, and read it pretty much all the way through it to when i started working and then i stopped reading it because i didn't have time uh, <laughs> <laughs> but like the first time God, you know, you're making it sound like we work you too hard <laughs> <laughs> first time i went on a shoot with steve like it was a proper like celeb moment for me like yeah, totally. having seen yeah. his photos you know he's kind of got his style and you see his name in, in in the mag all the way along and then you're suddenly there and he's taking your photo and you're like oh my god i can barely ride a bike like what am i doing here <laughs> like fish out of water but um a proper like fanboy moment really cool 100 percent. um i think before we wrap up we do need to just mention you know obviously the, the sport has changed and evolved over the years but I think it's become very noticeable in the last 10 years how many more women riders there are on the sport 100%. and how brilliant that is. And yeah. I think in terms of people who've helped with that, you know, you've obviously got the likes of Juliana Bikes, we mentioned earlier, and Liv, so giant mm-hmm. female-only brands. But I think you have to applaud people like Tracy Mosley mm-hmm. and especially Rachel Atherton as well, you know, who've achieved on the top level, got in the magazines, got in the videos, shown that women have a really important place in the sport. You know, Rachel especially appearing in the Sunday Times and the mainstream TV has really helped push mountain biking forward, mm. British mountain biking, women in mountain biking. And it's amazing now to see there's a women's free ride movement now. You know, there have always been women racing downhill, racing cross country, but 
you go to a trail center now and there are so many more women yeah. on the trails and it's brilliant to see. Yeah. yeah, we got a lot to thank those guys for. Yeah. I think Man and Carpenter as well, having moved Absolutely, on yeah. to do more advocacy stuff, moved on from racing perhaps and maybe less in the public eye, but actually doing some real good for not just mountain biking, but the world. Yeah. You know, that's a big one. That's a, yeah, it's quite <laughs> a big one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There is a world outside of cycling. <laughs> who, who knew? What? <laughs> what? Yeah, and I, th- I think it comes down to making mountain biking look fun. You know, you've got your likes of Anne Carachosson, who are amazing racers that do young girls want to emulate them? I don't know. Whereas mm-hmm. I think people like Tani and Rachel and yeah. Manon, absolutely, you know, you see them as a 14-year-old and you think, yeah, I, this is a sport for me. Yeah. Okay, guys, well, let's wrap it up. Thanks for all your inputs. I think it was... Uh... God, we could have talked about... We could go on and on, right? We... Oh, this planning, The planning document we've got for this, uh, for this episode of the pod, there's like 40 names in there and we have not even touched upon <laughs> a lot of them. I'm going to, you know, like... There's there's too many to name. There is too yeah. many. We've, yeah. we've got to we've got to go. <laughs> we've got to go. Right, I need more tea. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to the MUK podcast. We'll be back with many more. <laughs>